Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the uh, opportunity to use First John 1, 9 if necessary. And Make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to gather together to fellowship around the study of your word. Father, it's your word that refreshes us. It's your word that uh, guides us. It's your word that comforts us in times of adversity. It's your word that gives us uh, absolute truth by which God the Holy Spirit sanctifies us in our thinking, conforming us not to the world but to the absolute truth of your thinking. Father, as we continue our study in First Kings. We just pray that you would uh, help us, encourage us to, as we understand these doctrines, to put them into practice, that as we see the parallels between our time and that time, that it may give us greater insight and wisdom in how to live our lives in the midst of a pagan culture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in First Kings chapter 17. It's been three weeks since we were here, and I have a normal procedure. I'm having con- public confession this evening that uh, <clears throat> if I don't remember what I taught the week before, which happens more often than I would like to or where I stopped, I go to the Dean Bible website, pull up the f- file, listen to the last ten minutes, figure out where I was. They're migrating the website onto a new uh, uh server today, so there was nothing, but thank heavens for what Martin did last year in putting all those videos up on Google, and finally occurred to me I could go there and see the last lesson on Google and uh, figure out where what I did the last time, so that's always helpful. First Kings chapter uh, 17, as we look at Elijah, one of the key things we need to remember is what the New Testament says in relation to Elijah, that he was a man with a nature like ours. There is such a tendency for us as human beings to get involved in some kind of uh, hero worship where we put uh, spiritual leaders, whether they're pastors, whether they're Old Testament prophets, key leaders of any kind on some sort of pedestal, that we forget that we're all sinners, that we all have various uh, trends, failings, flaws in our sin natures, and that none of us are able to do anything apart from the grace of God. And this same thing is true even about great leaders in the Old Testament, such as Elijah or Moses or any of the others that, that we can think of. What makes the difference is their mental attitude toward God and their willingness to completely and radically trust God in the midst of the most uh, difficult situations, adverse situations, and we see them fail when they get their eyes off the Lord, just as we do uh, many different times. And so that's that's an encouragement for us because uh, we may not be able to pull off the miracles 
that Elijah did when he was on Mount Carmel, but that's because we're in a different dispensation. We have a different role. But the principles that energized his spiritual life are the same ones that energize ours. And the focus in James 5 is on his prayer, which really isn't emphasized that much in 1 Kings 17. So if you're just reading through 1 Kings, you may not realize how critical prayer was to what Elijah is doing in 1 Kings 17 and in 1 Kings and in the rest of the chapters related to Elijah's life. So a couple of things we ought to remember. First of all, he is a man with a nature like ours. So he's susceptible to all of the same trends of his sin nature that we are, fear, anxiety, worry, mental attitude, sins, of uh, uh, self-reliance, trying to make things work on our own apart from God, all of these things. And God has, got, has to take him through various testing situations and circumstances in order to teach him and prepare him for where God is taking him uh, down the road in his ministry. First Kings 18 happens because of events in 1 Kings 17. We're not told what else God did to prepare Elijah for, first, for what happens in 1 Kings 17. That is, uh, was not part of the uh, revelation from God the Holy Spirit for us and not necessary for us to know that. So the first thing is he's like we are, and so we can extrapolate the same principles from his spiritual life and apply them to ours. Second thing is Elijah lived in a time that is uh, amazingly parallel to our own time period. And so we can see principles, and we're going to uh, pull out some principles on how we should live in the midst of a not only just a pagan culture and a pagan worldview and a worldview that and, and a culture that surrounded him that was uh, antagonistic to God, but one that was radically antagonistic, as we see, as we'll see when we get into First Kings 18. Jezebel has had her hit squad out, and they have uh, killed a number of prophets and a number of other believers. So there is a high level of uh, persecution against believers to the point of costing them their life. So it was an extremely difficult time, and one as I said, that's very close to ours. And uh, before, as we get started here, I want to go back and look at a verse that I think is often overlooked. And I've talked about it a little bit in the past, but I re, the more I think about it, the more I reflect on it, the more I think that there's a lot going on in this one verse or the fact that this verse is there says something that, we move past too quickly. And that's at the end of the last verse in chapter 16. In his days, he, El of Bethel, built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Seguv, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, if you read that in you're in the, that's New King James translation. You read that, you probably breeze right past it, not realizing perhaps what is said there. Uh, the way it's structured in the English, he laid its foundation with a byram as firstborn, may not make you realize that that means that when he started the project to rebuild Jericho, God took the life of his firstborn as God had indicated back in Joshua chapter 6 verse 26, and when he completed the project, his uh, youngest son's life was taken. And this reveals something about Hiel's mentality that is characteristic of the era. He is so concerned about success and completing his project that the the life of his son's are not relevant. They don't matter to him. He's more concerned about his success than his his own sons. It also says something about his attitude toward God that he really doesn't think that this is something that God did. 
He's ignorant of God's word, perhaps, ignorant of the curse from Joshua, although curses like that, uh, prophecies, announcements of judgment, tend not to go away. People tend to remember these things. They tend to enter into sort of a um, uh, a pop culture type of uh, uh, environment, so people tend to remember things like that, so I'm sure he wasn't completely ignorant of it, but he doesn't care. And what we see in this verse and in the uh, context at the end of chapter 16, as I've talked about the last time, is a real window into the culture of 9th century B.C. Uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, and its apostasy. And there are a number of parallels between 1 Kings 16 uh, and, the cult, for our, our, and this whole era and our our own. And so we'll take a look at these one at a time. First of all, first point. Fools live in a fantasy world and make policy based on fallacy. I could have had a lot more alliteration there, but I decided to spare you. Fools live in a fantasy world. What I mean by that is that Scripture says that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And throughout much of Scripture, there's the contrast between wisdom and foolishness, the life of the wise, the life of the fool. And wisdom in Scripture is skillful living, how a creature lives skillfully before God so that he creates in his life that which has uh, real beauty and glorifies the Creator. In contrast to that, you have the fool. And the fool is the person who builds his life on completely false assumptions. Uh, Jesus talks about the man who built, used a parable and talked about the man who builds his house on on shifting sand. This is the same idea that uh, uh, the, a person builds their life, their thinking, their values, their uh, whole approach to life on uh, completely fallacious assumptions. And we often quote the psalm that states that a uh, fool has said in his heart there is no God, and we hear that to say that a person who's an atheist is a fool. But that verse is saying something more profound, and that is that the person who's thinking within their soul, and the heart there stands for soul, the person who uh, operates his life as if there is no God is a fool. Now, there are many people who believe that there is a God. Many of us believe there's a God. And when we get out of fellowship, we act like there's no God and we make foolish decisions. And so when people operate on a non-biblical foundation, they're not operating on divine viewpoint, and they're operating on human viewpoint, then they are constructing a fantasy view of reality. They're not dealing with life as God has made it and as it is, but they're going to deal with creation on the basis of their, uh, their own ideas. And so this is what's brought out in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 talks about man and negative volition rejecting God, and so he worships the creation rather than the creator. And professing himself uh, to be wise, he becomes a fool. And so you have a lot of intellectual accomplishments, a lot of uh, uh, technological achievements, but the bottom line is that God is rejected, and so even though uh, men may make a lot of good decisions, accomplish some things, may do some things uh, well, they have to because at some level the unbeliever and the believer are both living in God's world, and you can only create your own fantasy for so long until you bump your head on the ceiling of reality. Now, when you get a culture of people who have rejected God, they're going to put something in its place. The absence of God always creates a vacuum. A vacuum sucks in whatever uh, is around there that appeals to the desires of the unbeliever. And unbelievers have to have, always have to have some sort of origin story. Everybody has to know where they came from. Who am I? What am I? These are basic questions people ask as they as they begin to grow up, trying to figure out 
uh, if their life has meaning or purpose or any kind of, of destiny. And so people ask that question, where did I come from? Is there a God? And those who deny that there is a God and reject the biblical God and the biblical story of creation have to have a substitute. They, they can't just live as if there is no answer to the question. And so they have to generate some kind of answer. That's, and that is foundational to all thought. Unless, of course, you're just radically and irrationally inconsistent, which a lot of people are. They just don't want to think things through and try to connect the dots. So they, they will believe a lot of different things that uh, aren't consistent and that, that don't necessarily connect. And this is typical of any kind of, of human viewpoint. Then there are those that are of the more intellectual category who are the philosophers who try to construct extremely tight logical uh, systems that exclude God. And this has become very popular in the last uh, few years. We've had a couple of popular books out. Uh, Christopher Hitchens' book, That God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And you just see this hostility toward uh, religion, the belief in a God. He's using it in a normative sense there. And also Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. I like the response that um, one theologian in England wrote called uh, The Dawkins Delusion. So these are very popular, and they've been making a lot of headway the last few years. And another book that has come out in the last year that is also quite significant is a book by Anthony Flew. Now, Anthony Flew is, I don't know if he's in his 90s yet or not, but he is a world-class philosopher. I remember reading his material back in the back in the 70s, and um, he was perhaps one of the most uh, prominent atheistic philosophers in the world up until uh, two years ago. And he had a couple of debates with some evangelical apologists, and I think that probably tweaked him out. He's not a believer. He's not, I'm not even sure if he is a theist yet, but he is, definitely believes there's something rather than nothing. And before, he didn't believe there was anything out there. And he has recently published his story, There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Now, I don't remember seeing Anthony Flew on uh, Fox and Friends in the Morning or on Good Morning America or these other shows. It talked about Dawkins and uh, had Christopher Hitchens on. So I guess you don't get enough press if you're if you believe in God. But these are the intellectual atheists, and they provide an intellectual framework for those who wish to justify their rejection of God. But a lot of people just don't want to go that far, and they just functionally reject God. They have a smorgasbord view of religion, and this is borne out more and more by uh, various studies and surveys that are made today that Americans uh, just want to have a cafeteria-style religion where they go through and they'll pick this out of Buddhism and this out of Hinduism and, and this out of uh, uh, Islam and this out of secular humanism and this out of Christianity and blend it, blend it up, mix it up, and come up with their own little religious system. And uh, they think that's just fine and good. They don't realize that, that any of these things need to be thought out and somehow integrated with one another. And so they create fantasy worlds. The trouble with living in a fantasy world is that reality always seems to rear its ugly head at some point and something happens. And this is what happened with Hiel is that he has uh, generated, like the rest of the northern kingdom of Israel, a fantasy view related to the existence of Yahweh. This started with the... Uh, revisionism that was promoted by the government in, uh, with the rise of uh, Jeroboam I, and which we studied when he created the two golden calves and said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. We see that, that historical uh, revisionism, and we see a lot of that kind of thing going on 
in our own culture. It's not just a liberal thing. It's a uh, there are conservatives who do that as well. They don't do it as as well, and they they don't do it as much. But uh, there are conservatives out there who who do that uh, just as much because they are functional atheists. And they're conservative for one reason or another, but it's certainly not informed from a biblical worldview. Well, Hiel lays the foundation for, as he begins to build Jericho, he's willing to completely reject the prophecy that Joshua had made in Joshua 2.26. Joshua charged them, that is the generation that had just conquered Jericho, and he said, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with its firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And so that is literally and precisely fulfilled in the episode with Hiel. But it's not just a matter of prophecy being stated and prophecy fulfilled as much as it tells us about the foolishness and the fantasy view of reality that characterizes not only Hiel, but the whole culture in the northern kingdom. They have rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a real entity who interacts with creation and holds mankind accountable for the decisions that they make, and that as the creator he has established within the uh, framework of creation, certain uh, standards, certain uh, realities that when we violate these built-in social laws, economic laws, physical laws, that the result is going to be catastrophic. And so within this, uh, within this open universe in which we live, it's not closed like modern science wants it to be, it's an open universe, God intervenes, and when we get to a point uh, beyond uh, negative volition, beyond a certain point, then God intervenes and brings about uh, judgment and brings about certain consequences. And so what we see with this one individual and the reason he is brought into this is because he gives us this picture of the whole culture in the northern kingdom that Elijah has to deal with and that he will be confronting in the next uh, next few uh, next few chapters, and so they don't believe that Yahweh is really there. They don't believe that Yahweh really intervenes in life, and they don't believe that uh, Yahweh is really relevant to day-to-day decisions. And that's the essence of being a fool. And this is what happened with. Uh, with with it, that culture, and it's happened with numerous other cultures down through the centuries, is that when God is removed and we start operating on a false foundation of thought, that sooner or later uh, the decisions be- begin to accumulate and th- things begin to fall apart. And we see this in, in our culture today, that with all the economic crises and all the talk about uh, recession and everything else that's going on. Part of what we need to be pay attention to is the fact that there are uh, people who are just ignorant of and rejecting certain financial and economic economic realities, and they they live in a uh, a fantasy system. So that affects not only economics, of course, but it also affects the ethics. That they use, and all law ultimately is going to be built on some sort of ethical foundation. And if you have an ethical system that comes out of, um, if you have an ethical system that is based on relativism, an ethical system that is based on a god that ultimately is um, just a supersized human who's always fighting violent uh, wars with other gods involved in all sorts of uh, promiscuous sexual activity, then you are going to imitate that in your culture, which is exactly what was seen in the northern kingdom. Now, the second thing, so the first thing that I pointed out here is that is characteristic of that time as well as our time, is that 
Fools live in a fantasy world, and they begin to make policy based on that fantasy. The second thing that we see is that life is not as important. Human life is not as important. You see, the same thing happen, characterized the thinking of the Jews in uh, the Jewish leaders, the religious Jewish leaders in um, in Judea or in, in, in Israel at the time of Christ. Now, they're coming at it from the opposite side. They're not coming at it from an atheistic side per se. They're coming at it from a religious legalistic side. But in the episode that's recorded in uh, the Gospels about Jesus and the Gadarene demoniac, that when he cast the demon and when he asked the demon who he was, the demon said he was legion, which wasn't a name. It was indicating that there were two or three thousand demon, individual demons uh, indwelling this uh, one individual. And so when Jesus cast them out and they went into the uh, pigs, which were uh, the pigs were unclean animals, according to the Mosaic law, and this was over in a Gentile area in the south, uh, to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. When, when uh, the, the uh, demon came out of the individual and went into the pigs, the people were more concerned about what happened to the pigs because they ran off the cliff and went into the lake and drowned. And people were more concerned about the pigs than they were the individual who had just been uh, delivered. The life of the animals was more important than the life of the, this one individual and how Jesus had had delivered uh, delivered him from these from this demonic possession, and so this also is happens in uh, pagan culture, and we have the same kinds of things happening today. Now I've taught on the abortion issue on the past in terms of it uh, not being murder per se because of the fact that God doesn't. Uh, impart the soul until birth, but that does not justify, uh, morally justify uh, a, a abortion. It may not be murder, but that doesn't mean it is a it is the approach to solving unwanted pregnancy. Then you have infanticide and the rise of infanticide in in uh, various places, and um, you have the problems with these partial birth abortions where there is a uh, a live birth, and then they end up killing the uh, baby because, oh, well, that's part of the abortion process. And so that shows that it's just an unwanted life, and this uh, bleeds over into, into euthanasia. And when people get old and they have Alzheimer's and they have various other diseases and it becomes very expensive to provide health care, well, let's just figure out some way to uh, let them die quickly and easily so it doesn't come, uh, we don't have these large expenses. So th- we develop a very utilitarian view of life that a person's value is not on the fact that they are created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore life itself has value and should be protected, but life only has value in terms of how somebody can contribute to society, and if they become more of a hindrance than a help, then they're no longer wanted. And so you see this reflected in Hiel's attitude that he uh, has, by removing God from the scene, is not being really involved in day-to-day things, and maybe he believed he didn't even exist. He Maybe he's a Baal worshiper, we're not said. But for him, life wasn't important, and he has a very callous view towards the loss of life of his two sons. Third thing we see in this is that success and the worship of material prosperity became foremost with the people. That is an outgrowth in the whole fertility religion uh, cult system with Baalism and the worship of the Asherah. These were the gods and goddesses who would provide agricultural fertility, agricultural prosperity, so that uh, if you would uh, properly uh, placate or propitiate the gods through various sacrifices, including the sacrifice of infants, 
they would take the infants and and uh, burn them alive as a as a burnt offering to these gods and goddesses. That's back to point number two. Then this would motivate the gods to make us make the people uh, successful and prosperous. And so that is seen in Hiel's attitude because he is he wants to rebuild the city so that it would be a city of commerce, a city where he could. Uh, make a, make himself wealthy, and he, it's at the expense of his uh, two sons. So nothing was more important to him than that material success and prosperity. We see the same thing in America today, and uh, I am a firm believer in free market capitalism, and one of the things that is uh Central in free market capitalism is the principle of greed. Adam Smith recognized this in in uh, the wealth of nations. But one person's greed ameliorates another person's greed. But when you start having the government come in and try to control uh, everything from the outside, that's when you start having uh, having a, having a meltdown. And sure, there will be people, uh, and it's not I'm not justifying it. There are people who are going to get out of control. And they are going to abuse the system, and that happens in every system. I think it was uh, Winston Churchill that said that capitalism was a was a terrible system of economics, but it was better than everything else. So it's the only basis for uh, only system that uh, allows for real, genuine freedom. Fourth thing that we see is that the result of religious decisions ultimately impact policy decisions. These religious decisions to shift to uh, first the golden calf and then Baalism were decisions that impacted the policy of Ahab and Jezebel. And this then in turn brought about judgment from God on the nation in terms of the uh, various stages of divine institutions, and this is why he's bringing the drought on the nation and economic uh, collapse. And it's in the midst of that economic collapse that we see Elijah learning his uh, lessons that relate to his spiritual advance. And so uh, we see that uh, the decisions that are made on the basis of fantasy then become institutionalized in terms of, of, of various policies. So we can think this through a little bit just in terms of a couple of examples in our own culture. First of all, we have an origin theory that's been developed from Darwin on, on uh, the theory of evolution. That is considered to be fact. It is functional reality for the vast majority of Americans. I don't care what they put on their little Gallup poll survey because a lot of Christians who believe that God created, they're not in favor of evolution. They don't necessarily believe in a creationist view of Genesis chapter 1. And you have a very few Seminaries, very few professors at the few seminaries that do emphasize a literal creation, uh, very few of their professors hold to a literal six, 24-hour consecutive day creation week in Genesis chapter 1. And they inter- always introduce some form of compromise or assimilation with evolutionary theory. Now, evolutionary theory is a framework, is the framework for the modern environmentalist movement. And the modern environmentalist movement uh, really has more, more affinities with paganism than anything, anything else, the worship of Gaia, Mother Earth, and a, an inherent hostility to human beings, we are the terrible, cancerous, malignant organism on planet Earth that's destroying it. And so what we have to do is quit producing anything uh, that produces uh, hydrofluorocarbons or anything else that may impact the environment because in our arrogance we think that this really does shape the environment and it's the real cause of global warming. 
rather than building a view of, of environment and climate change on a creationist model, we've built it on an evolutionary model. And that, that impacts financial decisions. Just this last week, or I think it was yesterday, the new administration announced a policy to change uh, policies related in the, in the states to um, you know, emissions, uh, automobile emissions and various things like that, which is going to impact automobile manufacturing. There's a huge press on to uh, uh, build electric cars and, and battery power cars and all the other stuff that's going on. All this is motivated ultimately out of a fantasy view of origins. It, it's consistent with a view of evolution. It's not consistent with a view of a God-run universe and a literal creation, young earth creation. So how you view God, how you view creation impacts a, a tremendous amount of things. And when you start operating on these kinds of uh, fallacy views of reality, it's going to ultimately cost a tremendous amount of money, cost a lot of jobs. It's going to hurt a lot of things. And yet we have an in administration in charge now that is going to ram uh, incredible policies through during the next few years. And, and they're not the first. I mean, this has been going on for at least 30 years. And Americans uh, generally do not understand these, these consequences because there are a few people out there to talk uh, about the, the ultimate issues related to creation versus, uh, versus evolution. You add on top of that uh, views on economics related to socialism, Marxism, that the government is the real safety net for everybody, and the government it can actually control uh, finances and money. And ever since uh, we've gone off the gold standard back in the uh, early 70s, with uh, Nixon took us off of the off the gold standard. That there's no uh, money monetary system in the world that's based on an objective absolute. It's all based on confidence, people's confidence that this paper is worth something, and uh, that's where we get the idea. The con game comes from a confidence game, it's just a big Ponzi scheme, and it's collapsing right now. That's what's happening world worldwide is that these monetary systems have been stretched to the max by uh, practices of extended indebtedness and uh, not paying for what you, what you get. So this leads to government control, attempts to control everything to avoid the negatives. And studies have shown that when we tried the same kinds of socialistic government intervention stimulation policies back in the 30s uh, after the Great Depression that they extended the length of the Depression rather than resolving anything, not to mention the fact that the other side of the coin is that it increased government power and decreased individual freedom and responsibility. So you have uh, the fantasies that occur in economic theory uh, plus, we have fantasies that occur in, in terms of ethics, that we can reshape ethics. We can reshape society in terms of the divine institutions. We can uh, you know, change marriage to be between members of the same sex. We can redefine families. And as you redefine all of these uh, divine institutions, the, there will be cumulative consequences that will be disastrous because man as a social being in the image of God was designed so that uh, these social institutions and the divine institutions are all ultimately have to do with man in relationship. That's what I mean by society. Man in relationship. God existed in a social uh in a social way for eternity at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have an eternal society there, an eternal relationship. Man is created to be in relationship. So initially you have the divine institution of volition, and that volition was in, to function in relationship to God and God's commands. 
fulfilling man's role to rule over the uh, rule over the planet to subdue it and to guard and keep the garden. When man violated that command, what what was the first thing that happened? Spiritual death, separation from God, a social consequence. But it had economic ramifications because prior to that, Adam worked the garden, but now the garden is going to, the earth is going to produce thorns and thistles. See, modern man, because he's rejected Genesis 1 and 2, thinks economics drive society. But the Bible says that these divine institutions drive everything else, and volition is social, marriage is social, family is social, government is social, nations are social, and when you screw those up, then what happens is the consequences impact economics. But we live in a world today that with the rejection of Genesis 1 to 11, they think it's economics first, social follows. And as long as you operate on that model of reality, the decisions you make are going to be foolish and disastrous. So we, you hear people talk about, well, so-and-so is good because they are a fiscal conservative even though they're a social liberal. I'd rather have it the other way around. Uh, generally, you're, you're going to do better because at least you're not going to be wiping out the divine institutions. But that is that same thing was happening in the northern kingdom of Israel, which is uh, why you have the consequences that you do, and they're brought about, of course, by direct divine intervention. That brings us to the fifth point. Those who stand up for absolutes and objective truth will be demonized, marginalized, and criminalized. They are demonized. They're made to be the enemy. And there is more hostility, open hostility today that's vocalized in the press, uh, vocalized by uh, various individuals in society. There's more hostility towards Christians, and Christianity is blamed for so many things. And the more conservative and biblical you are, the more you are demonized. And it's it's amazing for the past uh, eight years under... Uh, the presidency of George Bush and his, uh, with his alleged evangelical uh, testimony, he went to a Methodist church, that's not evangelical. He's not an evangelical by any stretch of the imagination. But somewhere along the line, he had a somewhat positive view toward Israel. Not one that, that I think was, was anywhere near strong enough, but it was better than nothing. And in the um, process of his support for Israel, he was uh, labeled uh, Christian conservative, that he was influenced by, uh, there were even those who said, well, he's just been influenced by dispensationalists, those nasty, evil uh, fundies who believe in a rapture and that God has a future plan for Israel. And, and dispensationalists get demonized by a certain segment of evangelicals because they see our support for Israel to be one of the real stumbling blocks to uh, um, uh, America really having peaceful relations with uh, Muslim countries. And the reason we've gotten into this whole war on terrorism is because we support Israel. and we do, they, God has no future plan for Israel, and it's those terrible dispensationalists and, and, and their influence on Bush. George Bush wouldn't probably even know the word dispensational and doesn't have anything to do with it, but it's just the standard approach of using the uh, uh, big lie technique to demonize those you don't agree with. And then the next stage is to... Uh, marginalize them so that they are rendered ineffective. They're, oh, they're just a radical group and they are labeled with these kinds of uh, uh, names so that uh, you don't listen to them. And there's a lot of character assassination involved with that, which is the normal uh, way of handling it through ad hominem arguments and straw men arguments and just, and because people generally Christians, non-Christians, we just, we're all products of this 
uh, very shallow, superficial, secular education system over the last 50 years. And generally, people are ignorant of church history. They're I- ignorant of the impact of Christianity on the institutions of our government and the institutions of, of our uh, society. And so it's real easy when people are operating in a uh, vacuum of ignorance to say all kinds of outlandish things that have no basis in reality. And unless you sit around and watch the news and read five or six different newspapers and go to different Internet sites, where well, you can still get the truth. You just have to dig for it to have some sort of objective information that you can go by if you're just listening to uh, the mainstream media, you can easily be, be uh, misled because they're operating within their fantasy worldview. So there's a lot of uh, character assassination. There's the big lie technique. And then this leads to the persecution of opponents. And we see all of this ha- happening with in, in Elijah. The first thing that Ahab says when he sees Elijah in chapter 18 is, Ahab, you troubler of Israel. See, all of this is your fault, Ahab. You're, you're the one who follows God. And you're the one who caused all this economic catastrophe and this drought and brought about all these problems. And here it's Ahab who's brought about the problems because he's the one who married Jezebel and allowed her to bring uh, Baalism into the northern kingdom. And this is just the standard technique. I wish I had kept a list this last year of all the things that the liberals accused conservatives of doing that was exactly what the liberals were doing. Conservatives weren't doing it. But that is a standard approach is to accuse the other side of doing exactly uh, what you're doing, uh, just a little sleight of hand technique to keep people distracted. So you have the those attempts, the uh, persecution of opponents. Jezebel had hundreds of believers uh, killed because of their refusal to bow the knee uh, to Baal. And so this is the culture and the situation into which Elijah is going to come. First Kings 17.1, we read Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab. Now this is the first time we hear about Elijah. Nobody has ever heard of him before. He hasn't been mentioned previously in the scripture. He just suddenly and dramatically appears before the king of the northern kingdom, who is a somewhat powerful king. The Amrid dynasty was very powerful. They were well known. There are uh, extra-biblical accounts on the Moabite stone, for example, mentions Amri and some other records in the ancient world. And so this uh, Amri was Ahab's father, and so this was uh, a somewhat powerful kingdom at, at this time, they had, through the marriage with uh, Jezebel, they were allied to the Sidonians and the Phoenicians. And so there was, uh, uh, Ahab is just not some minor little ruler. He was someone of significance in the ancient world. Now, Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. And so he, he fits his name because he is going to, demonstrate the reality of Yahweh over against the fantasy of Baalism, uh, which is simply being used by Ahab and Jezebel to uh, have power and control over, uh, over the people. So Elijah is said to be the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, Gilead was located on the east side of the Jordan River. I think I have a map down here somewhere. Yep, here we go. Tishba is thought to be over here on the east side of the Jordan River. See up here this light blue body of water. That's the Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea is to the south off of the map. Uh, this is Samaria. This is where Ahab had his uh, palace in the northern kingdom. And the area on the east side of the Jordan, also called the Transjordan, is the area that was also known as Gilead. And Tishbe was thought to be a settlement uh, over on that side of the on that side of the Jordan. 
Now, there's some debate on exactly the meaning of Tishba and its uh, uh, significance. Some think that it is a cognate of the word uh, that refers to sojourners or settlers. Um, there's no indication that there was ever a, lo- uh, a place or a village of that name, so we're we're not real sure. It could just simply be Elijah the settler in Gilead that he was uh, involved in uh, generating a Jewish settlement over there. How modern uh, that sounds! But uh, we have all the various West Bank settlements today. So this is uh, who he was. He's not a famous person. He's not well-known before this. He just is commanded by God to uh, challenge Ahab. Now, there's nothing in the text that says that God told him to do this, but we know from, uh, we can extrapolate from what happens from this point on that he doesn't ever make a move anywhere in the narrative apart from God telling him what to do. In verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him and said, Get away and go down to the brook Kareth. In verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him and told him to go to Zarephath. In 18.1, the Lord is going to tell him when to go to Ahab and uh, present himself before Ahab. So every step is the result of God telling him what to do, and so that would lie in the background here. So Elijah comes uh, to Ahab and says, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except my word. Now this phrase, as the Lord God of Israel lives, is a very important phrase because he's emphasizing the fact that the God of Israel is a living God as opposed to the idols of Baal and the Asherah that are made of wood and stone or metal, that the God of Israel is a a living God and he is both a personal God and an infinite God and that he is involved in the affairs of men. So he's not simply saying something uh, that is a stock phrase. He's not simply saying something... um, that would give a little more impetus to what he is saying. He is making a a strong statement about the fact that he represents the living, true God of Israel and that this God uh, intervenes in the affairs of men and Ahab has been violating uh, God's word and because of that, God is going to uh, initiate judgment against the northern kingdom. Because God is a living God and he is a personal God, we can know him and we can have a relationship with him. That relationship comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And after we trust Christ as Savior and we are saved, the next step is for us to learn the word so that we can know God. Jesus told um, uh, Philip in a very important uh, dialogue in John chapter 14, uh, Jesus had said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip said, well, it's it's enough, uh, uh, just show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, how long have you been with me, and yet you don't know me? You're saved, but you don't know me. In just the previous chapter, Uh, Jesus had uh, washed the feet of the disciples and had told Peter that all of them were clean or saved except one, and that was Judas. So we know that Philip was saved, but he didn't really know Jesus. That is, the, the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of God, is the result of years of Bible study, growth, prayer, and developing that relationship with God. Paul says that this is part of our goal as believers in Philippians 3.10, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection, that we come to know God only through the process of studying his word, the power of his resurrection. Resurrection is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is the power empowerment for the Christian life. The Christian life is a supernatural way of life, and we can only live it in the basis of the Word of God and the Spirit of God through the walking by the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, then we can uh, 
experience the power that raised Jesus from the dead in our own uh, spiritual lives. This principle is also true in the Old Testament. Daniel 11, uh, 32, the problem that uh, Daniel brings up with the people is that they do not know their God. Uh, the people that do not know that, excuse me, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. But those who don't know God are weak and the culture falls apart. And that was part of the context at that time. And then uh, recently in our study of Asa, we saw this statement in Second Chronicles 16.9, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. So as we want to know God, he is the one who provides us with the strength and the power to live the Christian life. And so it is God who is the real strength and power in Elijah's life. And so Elijah says, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, he recognizes that it is that he is there as a representative of God and that his mission is divinely ordained and divinely established and it doesn't matter what Ahab says at all. Ahab is nothing. Elijah recognizes that God is everything. And so for him, the presence of God is more real than the presence of Ahab. And we never get anywhere in the Christian life until we begin to realize that the truth of God's word has to be more real to us than our experience. It has to be more real to us than any of the adversities that we face, any of the problems that we see. We have to understand that God has a plan for us, that his plan is perfect, and wherever that plan takes us, that God is going to sustain us and he is going to provide for us. And that was exactly what Elijah was doing. The other aspect of this, it has to do with Elijah's mission. As a prophet, he was representing God to the nation. And he is going to challenge the nation with their lack of obedience to God their, and the fact that they had violated uh, the Mosaic uh, Covenant. And this is then expressed in the last phrase, uh, There shall not be dew nor rain these years, except at my word. So he recognizes his authority, but it doesn't come from within Elijah. He's not just making this up. It comes from the word of God, because back in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 18 through 20, God had stated that one of the ways he would punish the nation was to bring about a drought. He would make their heavens, verse 19, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Iron and bronze are metals that are not permeated by water. And so this is the picture that the heavens would turn to iron. And if you've ever been out in the desert when it's about 110 degrees, and you're looking at the sky, the sky just seems like it's it's silver gray, it's it's just a sheet of metal over you. And the earth like bronze, it has it just turns hard. Earth that doesn't have water uh turns hard, you can't plow it, you can't uh grow anything in it. This is also stated in Deuteronomy eleven, uh sixteen to seventeen, that if the people turned after other gods, verse sixteen then God would shut up the heaven that there would be no rain, the land would not yield her fruit, and they would perish in the land. Also in um, other passages such as uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28 reiterates this same judgment principle. And so Elijah appears on the scene and announces the beginning of this judgment. And of course this would bring about a tremendous economic collapse in an agricultural society. Uh, they would go into a serious uh, period of economic depression. That Not only would uh, crops be unable to grow, uh, people would starve, animals would starve. Uh, their, uh, their cattle, their sheep, 
uh, various other domestic animals would would die. They would not be able to get food. They would come to a position where they would have to import all of their uh, food, and they would become dependent upon uh, foreign nations in order to get their food supply. And this would bring them uh, to their knees. And so this is part of God's judgment. Now we'll come back and begin to see how God, what God's going to do with Elijah after this, starting in verse 2 uh, next week. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at uh, the situation surrounding Elijah. Uh, at the time of his ministry, that this has remarkable parallels to our own situation, our own culture, because we too are living in the midst of a pagan culture that is rapidly becoming institutionalized within our our government system and education system and in all of the various uh, areas of our culture so that those who believe in the word of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who believe in a literal creation become more and more ostracized and marginalized uh, within the culture, all setting us up for some future uh, future failure. But we know the truth and we know that as long as we learn the word and apply it under the uh, ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that you will watch over us, take care of us and sustain us no matter what the circumstances may bring, just as you did with Elijah. And so we are confident that no matter what we face, that we can do all things through uh, Christ who dwells in each of us, Christ who empowers us. Christ who strengthens us. We pray this in his name. Amen.